You're going to love this. Just love it. I know. Right? Right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right Here I am, stuck in the middle with you Yes, I am. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle From Pacifica Radio in lovely Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on 90.7 FM in L.A., in Oregon, on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast, and 106.7 FM KSO in Cozy Cottage Grove. Out in Pennsylvania, 93 FM WLRI in Lancaster. Out in Hawaii, on 88.5 FM, The Voice of Maui. Up in Minneapolis, St. Paul, AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. And coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio Free Brooklyn, Radio uh, GDPR Nashville, Detour Talk in East Tennessee, and of course, Radio Sputnik around the globe, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me. From Bradblog.com, thank you for joining us for another thrilling, action-packed, breathtaking adventure that we like to call the Bradcast. Coming up, Hillary Clinton has been describing Bernie Sanders' proposed programs for things like universal health care for all and free tuition to public colleges and universities as simply unrealistic. And it seems that a lot of people believe her. He's just too far to the left to be ever elected president in these United States, her supporters suggest. A socialist? What? A social, a Democrat, a self-declared Democratic socialist in the White House? Well, that's just too extreme for this country, the charge goes. Of course, the Republicans seem to agree with Hillary Clinton on that issue, laughing at the idea of a self-declared Democratic socialist becoming president. Naturally, Donald Trump has already rung in on the issue, calling Sanders a communist. But as it turns out, uh, what both Democratic critics of Sanders and Republicans alike, conveniently enough, what they fail to notice is that, as it turns out, if you bother to uh, you know look back more than a week or two ago, it turns out that our nation, going all the way back to our founders through Lincoln, uh, through FDR and, and, well, at least until Ronald Reagan offered his great con about government as the problem, not the solution. Our country is and was actually built upon the great progressive and, yes, democratic socialist ideals that Sanders has made the centerpiece of his run for the White House. We'll speak with historian and author Harvey J.K. about all of that momentarily, because frankly, I know you'll be shocked to learn our corporate media has not been doing a very good job of of covering what it is that the candidates actually stand for, what they believe in. 
uh, and and the context in which uh, they are offering these uh, policy proposals. Of course, they cover only the horse race, who's up, who's down, how can he win, how can she win, uh, you know, and of course, Donald Trump. But uh, so we will actually try, as we always do on this program, uh, to inform the electorate. So you can uh, can make a more informed choice when you head to the ballot box. Speaking of heading to the ballot box, voters are doing exactly that today for Super Duper Tuesday in Ohio, Illinois, Missouri, North Carolina, and Florida in what could could be make or break for the presidential candidates on both the Republican and the Democratic side, particularly on the Republican side where the five states now up for grabs from Super Duper Tuesday are winner take all by and large uh, for those Republicans when it comes to the delegates. Essentially, whoever wins by one vote in, you know, Florida ends up taking all of the state's delegates. And there are a lot of them available in these huge states uh, from Tuesday. Trump could win enough to virtually guarantee his nomination as the Republican presidential nominee. Uh, and for her part, Hillary Clinton could take back the momentum that has been gained by Bernie Sanders after his upset win in Michigan last week. Or we could see Sanders with a few more upsets once again in states like Illinois, uh, Missouri, even Ohio, which are all similar in places to the uh, to the Rust Belt electorate that came out uh, in Michigan last week and gave uh, Bernie Sanders his upset win there. Those contests on the Democratic side, those are apportioned, uh, the, the delegates are apportioned proportionately. So uh, it's unlikely to knock out either candidate, uh, you know, if, if it's close race, if it's 55-45 one way or another, that's essentially how they'll split up the delegates. So Bernie Sanders obviously could use a, a big win today to continue his momentum through states like California in June with our huge number of delegates out here. But and and uh, Hillary Clinton certainly still has a lead. It is not an insurmountable lead. Anyway, much more on that tomorrow. I am quite certain uh, as the results will, will uh, roll in and as well more on problems with voting and results counting that tend to appear in the days following the election today. So far, uh, I'm happy to report there are not too many problems yet being publicly reported. I'm hearing from a few folks. You can always email me. Uh, I am bradcast at bradblog.com in Florida. There were delays in Duval County, Florida, on Tuesday morning when shortly after the polls opened, uh, the Jacksonville area polling locations had what uh, International Business Times reports as technical difficulties. The computer problems there affected uh, voting across all 199 precincts in the county, resulting in delays. It turns out it was not a problem with the, uh, with the voting systems. They use optical scan paper ballots in Duval County, but they use optical scan computers to scan them, either correctly or incorrectly, who knows. Um, but it was a, a software error. I love how they always down a minor software error uh, prevented voters from checking in to vote. This is we've seen this a lot so far this uh, this season. Uh, where these electronic poll books they now use uh, all over the country because things were going so well with the computerized voting. 
they had to also computerize the poll books as well. And of course, when they go down, people can't vote unless they have paper backups. People can't sign in. They can't sign the poll books to register to vote. Uh, the uh, Northern Florida County's EVID electronic machines were set to be used to sign in people to vote. Uh, but they have uh, they do have. And thankfully, because they have had all kinds of problems with the EVID and the electronic poll system, uh, a registration system down in Florida. Thankfully, they now have a paper backup. Uh, but using those, the poll workers aren't trained on those. That caused delays. The uh, Duval County Supervisor of Elections told the Florida Times Union that there are no issues with the voting equipment that they know of, uh, and voters are still able to vote, uh, but it might take a little bit longer because they uh, had to switch from the electronic poll books over to the uh, uh, paper precinct registers. Um, in, uh, where is this, North Carolina, scattered problems are being reported with voting from machines not accepting ballots in Lumberton to no power at a North uh, rally uh, site, polling site. So anyway, we will learn, uh, we'll keep our eyes on that throughout the day and tomorrow and beyond when these problems show up. If you have any problem voting today or anytime this season, uh, please, please report it in a number of places, beginning with 866-HOUR-VOTE. That's run by a, a coalition of voting rights uh, advocates, and uh, they track these problems from all over the country. As they roll in, your small problem may actually be indicative of a larger problem that they will know because they keep a, a public database on this stuff. Uh, so tell 866-HOUR-VOTE and ask them if you have any questions or concerns. Also, make sure you, uh, when you do run into some kind of a problem when you're voting, make sure you let your county know about it. Make sure you let your Secretary of State's office know about it. And make sure you let uh, local media know about it as well. We all rely on you. Um, if you can be there when polls close on uh, Super Duper Tuesday or any other, and you can take photographs of the poll tapes as they're coming off of those electronic machines, whether the, the whether they're the optical ballot paper scanners or the touchscreen systems, that can often be useful. As uh, we had a story, uh, what was it, Desi Doyen, just this week in... Um, Oh, now I'm forgetting which town yeah, it was. Yeah, I know. It's, there's uh, the, so many. The, yeah, where, where they had actually reported. Uh, this was uh, Chelsea. Okay. This Chelsea, is Chelsea, Maryland. Mas Chelsea, Massachusetts, Massachusetts. Where they reported Jim Gilmore was the uh, reported as the winner of the Republican presidential primary. It turns out that the the memory cards, the optical scan systems at the polling places had recorded votes correctly. But when they uh, took those cards to the county and put them into the central tabulator, uh, the the numbers went sideways. No, Jim Gilmore did not actually win the uh, city of Chelsea, Massachusetts. But we only found that out uh, later on when we noticed that Jim Gilmore, for some reason, beat Donald Trump and all the other Republican candidates. But in that case, uh, that was one of those cases where having the photographs, you know, we noticed it because it was Jim Gilmore. But if it was anybody else, who knows if we would have noticed if uh, Donald Trump got an extra thousand votes or Bernie Sanders lost a few thousand votes or Hillary Clinton lost, you know. So those poll tapes can be very important. If you are near your precinct, please be there at poll closing time. Take a photograph of those uh, of those precinct uh, tapes as they come off of the machines. Also screenshots throughout the night from your computer as you're watching the results. Those can also be helpful the next day and beyond if there are any problems. 
So anyway, more on that tomorrow, uh, no doubt. Uh, speaking of facing delays, uh, all lanes of Interstate 10 at the Louisiana-Texas state line have been closed because of flooding, according to Louisiana governors, uh, the Louisiana governor's Office of Homeland Security and Emergency Preparedness. Heavy rains and flooding have damaged about 6,143 homes in Louisiana over the last few days. Desi Doyen, are you you're familiar with this oh, flooding that's been yeah. going on down there? This is, uh, of course, Desi, our producer. I didn't give you a proper hello. Oh, thank Hi, you. Desi, and Hi. my co-host on the Green News Report. Thus, thus I figured you would have heard about this story. <laughs> uh, the uh, Louisiana Department of Transportation said portions also of Interstate 59 in South Louisiana and South Mississippi have been closed because of the rising water. Since last Wednesday, the Louisiana National Guard has reported 4,255 rescues and the Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries has reported 700 rescues due to this flooding. Yep. So I'm not reporting this uh, because we do traffic and weather here on the nines. Uh, <laughs> I'm pointing out that in Louisiana and Texas at the state line, this huge interstate uh, 10 is now shut down. I can't imagine the time uh, that that is costing, uh, you know, commuters and, and drivers down there. In t and by the way, in Louisiana and Texas, where, you know, global warming does not exist. Apparently. Because, you know, they're deniers. Those states uh, don't give a damn. They would rather have the oil and the hell with people who need to use the highways. And apparently the hell with, the, you know, <laughs> these people. How, how much does that cost to rescue almost five thousand people that's an excellent question i mean you've got the costs of the rescue you have the costs of the economic yeah. damage the losses over time from closed businesses uh lost time people not being able to get where they need to go and especially interstate transport across those interstates with the you know the trucking industry yeah and we talked yesterday on the show about marco rubio and his latest you know denialist uh, lines that he he offered at the uh, republican debate recently even as florida is sinking uh, and, and, you know, and of course, the line that all the Republicans use is this will destroy our economy if we take any action on global warming. Well, uh. Look how this is <laughs> destroying your economy already yes. every day yeah. in and out when we have this. And that is the issue that I think most folks are ready to talk about. They're ready to talk about the policy responses. Let's get past this stupid, useless denial that the Republicans keep throwing out and, and actually deal with the problems. You know, this is exactly what scientists have been predicting for decades, that global warming is going to turbocharge extreme weather in all phases, not just, you know, warm weather with heat waves and droughts, but also with precipitation. So we'll have more extreme weather rain events. And that's already been documented for decades now. There is, I think it's in the Northeast. Noah calculated mm -hmm. that the Northeast has had a something like 70% increase in heavy deluges. The Southeast has seen a 20% increase in these types of heavy deluges where, this, uh, where weather systems get parked over a particular location and they dump all the rain in one place because they're very slow moving instead of moving on like they used to when we were kids. And we have a new report on exactly that uh, today. Rising temperatures worldwide are changing not only weather systems, but just as importantly, the, dis the distribution of water globally, around the globe, uh, affecting the availability of uh, potable water, according to this uh, new study. 
uh, from the bu- 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 professor. This is a New York College of Environmental Science and Forestry in the U.S. Uh, the uh, co-author of the study, Myra Mitchell, says this study shows how climate change is altering the spatial patterns and amounts of precipitation where it comes comes from. And where it falls, such effects can drastically affect the availability of potable water and also contribute, as we see today in Louisiana and Texas, contribute to massive flooding, as we have seen in recent years, says Mitchell. Uh, this is uh, from their uh, study that appeared in uh, Scientific, the journal Scientific Reports. The researchers found that over, over the years, there's been a dramatic increase, especially during the winter, of the amount of water that originated far to the north. In the latter years, in the later years, we saw more water derived from evaporation of the Arctic and the North Atlantic Oceans. With 85% of the world's population living in the driest half of the planet and 783 million people living without access to clean water, according to the U.N., it is vital for scientists and policymakers to understand how a changing climate affects water resources. Uh, But so that's going on. But I, I think the bigger news, the biggest news, and this is just literally off the charts A dramatic surge in this is a UK independence report on this. A dramatic surge in the Earth's surface temperatures took place in February, which saw the biggest month on month rise in global warming on record, according to the latest figures now released by NASA. As global temperatures rise well above their seasonal averages, especially in the northern hemisphere, sea ice in the Arctic also continues an overall downward trajectory with a new record monthly low for sea ice in the Arctic in February. February turns out to be, well, this is, and a lot of people are misreporting this. And and Desi, I know you checked in with our friend uh, Michael Mann. Yes. Creator of the Hockey Stick Graph, University of uh, Pennsylvania? Penn, uh, yeah, Penn State. Penn State University. There we go. Uh, on this to clarify. So they're reporting February was the warmest month on record, and 2016 is headed to become the warmest year on record, warmer even than 2015, which had itself set a clear record over previous warming uh, warmest years. So, uh, But they're a little bit wrong when they say February was the warmest, warmest month on record. In fact, it wasn't the warmest. It was the warmest difference it was the warmest february ever recorded and it was the warmest the biggest departure from the previous average ever recorded so yeah it was a little confusing because they keep saying that it's the warmest month on record but they're actually trying to say it's the warmest february month on record and the largest departure from any month that's what michael mann uh, essentially clarified for us you know and he said you know july 2015 was actually the warmest month ever recorded ever of any month of any on the planet. On the planet. Right. So just to keep that in perspective, yeah, it's bad and it's uh, it's a dangerous sign, but it is uh, not necessarily the, the warmest month. Well, ever. not the warmest month ever, but the warmest difference from the uh, expected from the temperature and by a mile. Gavin Schmidt, the director of uh, NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies, uh, he put out a couple of tweets yesterday. He said updates for February uh, temperature analysis added the word wow and then said normally I don't comment on individual months too much weather not enough climate but last month was special and indeed this chart is mind-blowing I said it was off the charts it's literally off the charts this spike that has now happened in February the departure from the average temperature they had to make the chart about 50 percent taller yep 
to account for this never-before-seen spike. Uh, it, it was particularly uh, warm in uh, a number of uh, northern uh, reaches near in the Arctic and so forth. Uh, the Arctic and northern Russia, they are seeing some incredible warm weather uh, over the past month or two. European researchers under the Copernicus Climate Service found that uh, February was more than five degrees centigrade. That's how much Fahrenheit. That's like around 18. For our American listeners. <laughs> ish. About 18 degrees. That's is that what about, that is? Yeah, that's a really bad calculation. But yeah, that's uh, considered about 18 degrees Fahrenheit. At least 10 degrees Fahrenheit uh, above the uh, uh, 1981 to 2010 average for the month over a region stretching from Finland to Greece, extending eastward to western Siberia, Kazakhstan, and the northern part of the Middle East, in parts of northwest Russia and the Barents Sea, temperatures peaked at more than 10 degrees centigrade above average. Just unbelievable. Yep. Uh, but, uh, you know, other than that, nothing to worry about. You know, you can't pass a law. What did uh, Rubio say? You can't pass a law to, to change, change the, the weather. weather. And uh, we're, we're not going to do anything about climate if it's going to hurt our economy. Unbelievable. All right, we got to take a quick break and we will come back with much more broadcast, including Professor Harvey J.K. on the history of what democratic socialism here in these United States. Yes, please pay attention. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your broadcast. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. The 2016 election season is now at full throttle. Here at the Bradcast and bradblog.com, we fight for election integrity all year round, like no other media outlet in the nation. But we need your support to keep doing so, now more than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate to make a monthly pledge of any amount you like to help keep us going, or even just a one-time-only contribution. While everyone else covers the horse race, we also keep our eyes on the track conditions those horses are running on. Because voting systems, access to the polls, and citizen oversight of election results can make all the difference. Please help us continue to fight independently for your democracy by taking about 60 seconds right now to stop by bradblog.com donate today. And thanks. Yeah, don't do that. Don't look back. uh, Republicans don't want you to look back. Look back at the founding of our country. Look back to the uh, 250-some-odd years of public policy in this country. Don't look back. Just listen to what they tell you on Fox News. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com with you here. Uh, Back in 2008, I think it was, I was uh, I was appearing live on Fox News for something or other. I have no idea what what the nonsense was. It was just before it was days before the election, though, between Barack Obama and John McCain. Uh, and and McCain at the time was uh, desperate, and he was trying the old uh, socialist line redistribution of income thing that he was. Uh, they were tossing that against Barack Obama. They were in trouble. They were trying anything, and so 
uh, that's the card they played. And I was, uh, as I noted at the time, I was asked about it on air. And, uh, you know, I think the question was, what do you think of uh, Barack Obama and his comments about redistribution of income or something? Uh, now, when Republicans use that phrase, that's a code word for socialist, which is a code word for communist when Republicans use it, which is just red baiting. And that's what I pointed out at the time uh, on Fox News. It was live, so I got to say it. They couldn't cut it out. Uh, and it is. It really is just red baiting, plain and simple. It's a longstanding tactic of desperate Republicans going back to the well, to the Joe McCarthy era, but really far beyond it, frankly. Uh, over this past weekend, Donald Trump did away with the code words, uh, never mind redistribution of income, socialist. Uh, he did away with code words, as he does, and just out and out called Bernie Sanders a communist. After uh, protests at Trump's planned rally in Chicago last Friday were blamed by him on Sanders supporters. It's an old game in American politics, frankly, and uh, it's still an effective one, or at least it used to be. Everyone from FDR to even the Republican Eisenhower has been smeared as a socialist or a communist by their by the right wing. And this year, with the rise of self-declared Democratic Socialist Bernie Sanders, we've even heard it used against uh, as an attack against him, even by Democrats who, frankly, ought to know better. America has a proud tradition of democratic socialist policies and programs, from the still incredibly popular programs such as Medicare to Medicaid to Social Security to the to the uh, uh, VA medical system to the military itself. In fact, as I suspect my guest today would agree, this nation was founded on such socialist principles and programs, even as that word has been effectively used by opponents of progressive change over many recent decades as a code word smear by those uh, largely who think that it is they, the corporations, rather than we, the people, who ought to control the, le the levers of government in this uh, great, if quite clearly flawed American experiment. Joining me to talk about this now is Harvey J.K. He is the Ben and Joyce Rosenberg Professor of Democracy and Justice Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay and the author and editor of 15 books, including 2005's Thomas Paine and the Promise of America and 2014's The Fight for the Four Freedoms, What Made FDR and the Greatest Generation Truly Great. That book earned him the honor of being named The Nation Magazine's uh, Progressive Honor Roll back in 2014. That's good enough for me. Harvey J.K., welcome to the broadcast, sir. Thank you, Brad. I've been looking forward to this. Great to have you here. Uh, before we get into this conversation proper, Professor, looking at your Twitter feed, etc., it seems you're a supporter of Bernie Sanders. And not that there's anything wrong with that, as they say, <laughs> but we like to be transparent here on the broadcast. Are, are you working for the Sanders campaign in uh, in any way, or are you volunteering? I mean, am any I receiving any kind of uh, any? No, I, I do not work for the for the Sanders campaign. Okay, I, I do not. I, I, no, I do not. But, but it's, I, I mean, I have yeah. contributed. Okay? okay, fair enough. And so, fair enough to say you are a supporter of Bernie Sanders. I just, and like I said, nothing wrong with that. I just want to you know be transparent oh, yeah, no, about that. I, there's no hiding. It. I've said it on radio before yep. and television. Okay. Excellent. Now, in an article that you wrote for uh, Bill Moyers and Company last year, 
Uh, not long after Democratic U.S. Senator Claire McCaskill from Missouri, uh, a Hillary Clinton supporter, she had appeared on MSNBC, uh, and she went on to describe Bernie Sanders as, quote, too liberal to gather enough votes in this country to become president. She went on to describe his policy prescriptions for the nation as, quote, extreme. And you wrote in the piece headlined, Social Democracy is 100% American, that, quote, for some time, we have feared that Republican politicians were losing their minds. Now it seems we must worry, as well, that Democratic politicians are losing their memories. Indeed, McCaskill, uh, who is an excellent politician, she won two terms as senator in a state that has been moving rapidly to the right since I left. Uh, it, it is my home, uh, my home state of Missouri. I was born and raised there. I blame myself for its remarkable shift uh, to the wingnut right <laughs> since then. But anyway, she... Uh, she seems to be, or at least you seem to argue, that she seems to be misreading Democrats, even in her home state, because right now, Bernie Sanders, he may end up winning the state's Democratic primary on Tuesday. Um, so I, I guess I, I specifically wanted you on the show to talk about uh, what memory it is that you feel that Democrats have lost. And so very generally uh, speaking, you know, the memory that we're losing track of. What is it in general terms? What is how do you describe democratic socialism as Bernie Sanders uses it and as we have uh, traditionally understood it in this country, not as a smear, but as a political idea? What what does democratic socialism actually mean to you in this country as a yeah, well, professor? You know, as in the most basic sense. Democratic socialism, or as I prefer to put it, social democracy, mm -hmm. means that we harness the powers of democratic government to make American life freer, more equal, and more democratic. Now that stands in contrast, say, to a conservative approach, which is to either empower uh, hyper-individualism in the libertarian sense, or as we've seen so often in the Republican Party, empowering big capital and corporations to pursue their interests with a trickle with, with with some idea that it'll all trickle down you know when we when we have faced crises mm -hmm. when we have really transformed the nation in a fashion in which more and more americans have been able to enjoy and participate in the good of america it is usually involved historically involved what i would call social democratic action you know, if if you would allow me, I, I just mm -hmm. make some historical references. Well, let me actually, uh, and I'm going to okay. get. To, well, actually, let, let's go ahead and get to some of those because uh, you argue uh, in that article uh, at uh, Moyers, Bill Moyers and Company, that uh, the headline "Social Democracy" is 100% American. You describe that in your story. You underscore it in your in your book on FDR, I believe, as well as your book on uh, Thomas Paine. So, yeah, right. go ahead and explain right, well, how is it 100% American. Well, the first. Well, for a start, the original visionary of social democracy mm -hmm. was the American revolutionary Thomas Paine, mm -hmm. the man who wrote the pamphlet Common Sense that was the first major pronouncement or call for America to declare its independence from Britain, mm -hmm. the man who, who later wrote uh, These Are the Times of Try Men's Souls in the Crisis, uh, the man who, on going back to Europe, found himself bound up in the French Revolution as an American and lays out in the second part of Rights of Man, the, probably the most historic pamphlet on, in world history, uh, a call for social security and other public initiatives, and then, comes, and then goes on to write Agrarian Justice, which is an argument in which he says, if you really want to fight poverty, 
then we need to tax the landed rich. There wasn't an industrial rich at the time. You tax the landed rich to create a public fund. And that public fund would provide for two things. First of all, it would provide for every American, or sorry, everyone in any society reaching Mm -hmm. a particular age of maturity, an old age pension. And moreover, and this was the most radical thing, he said that young people, and this included not only young men, but also young women, would be affo- should be afforded a, a stake, S-T-A-K-E, a sum of money uh-huh. on reaching the age of maturity, say, 16, 18, 21, whatever it might be. Wow. And that stake could be used for an education, for buying uh, land, or for setting up in business. Now, that is social democracy from the get-go. And that was his argument. If you believed in fighting poverty, that's what you need to do. Wow. Now, I mean, and this, these ideas drove a whole series of movements, which the best example I can give you of the, of the great social democratic moment, and most people don't realize this, but there was a, a recent book that, that argued this on a grand scale, was the administration of Abraham Lincoln. I mean, we know that Abraham Lincoln's administration saw the Civil War and the emancipation of slaves, uh-huh. driven both by the war and by the uh, self-emancipation or rising of slaves in the South. But what we often forget about the Lincoln years, and this was in the midst of the worst crisis of the 19th century imaginable, the Civil War, Lincoln signed into law the, La- the, the Homestead Act, mm-hmm. which afforded public lands out here in the Midwest and West to family farmers. Mm-hmm. He signed the Marill Act, which is the Land Grant Act, that gave la- public lands to states for them to then sell those lands to create state universities. I mean, you can't get much more, if you like, social democratic than that, can you? Right. And, then, yeah. and third of all, in the Lincoln years began the move that later we associate with Teddy Roosevelt, which is a great social democratic moment, the creation of public recreation facilities, national parks. And, it, and there's one other thing I'd like to point out, which yeah. Americans, you know, we've, we've been driven to believe that social democracy is something that only happens in Scandinavia. And unfortunately, I think Bernie himself could have done a lot better in explaining social democracy. Mm-hmm. We pioneered the idea of public education. Right. And what could be more social democratic than for the states, than the United States in general, but for the states to provide public education at taxpayers' expense so that all young people become educated and informed? That's social democracy. Now, notice, I haven't even come into the 20th century yet. Yeah, and we'll, and we'll get to that. We'll get to FDR and the Four Freedoms. But how is it that Republicans, who so often cite Thomas Paine and uh, uh, Abraham Lincoln, how, how is it that they seem to have missed those parts of their argument? Uh, is well, that, it, yeah. it, it is interesting, isn't it, that, for example, the Tea Party. The Tea Party right. went out of its way to try to embrace Thomas Paine. And right. by the way... For 200 years in American history, every variety of conservative sought to suppress the memory of Thomas Paine because they knew very well that Paine's arguments involved not only the call for independence, but also a call for a popular democratic republic and also for the creation of social democracy. They found it in themselves to only think in terms of Paine was dangerous as a Democrat generically. Then the, the Tea Party, they found a few lines in the pamphlet Common Sense the line that said, government is a necessary evil, and ripped it out of, out of its context and ignored the fact that Paine was attacking European monarchical and aristocratic governments. Mm. So, you know, how is it that Republicans have either avoided or then tried to construe Paine in a way that serves their interests? Well, they've done it in part, and I think this is the tragedy, because Democrats and liberals utterly failed to contest those arguments. Yeah. Liberals, too, in their own way, 
And Democrats of the capital D too often ran from the memory of Thomas Paine. And it required progressives of various colorings and stripes to every generation since the death of Thomas Paine to redeem Paine's memory and reassert his role in the making of America and the legacy and vision that he affords us. And does to, that sort of get at it? Yeah, it does. And to rewrite his history. And I'll uh, and I want to talk to more about how Republicans are taking uh, have been continuing to rewrite history and to take advantage, and and how the Democrats have uh, too often not stood up for themselves, not stood up for social democracy, even in the wake of uh, these social democratic programs, which are uh, still wildly popular today. Yeah, Brad, if I could yeah. just say what, what something, it's very interesting that if you, look, if you look from the time of Jefferson until the time of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, no historian named, used Thomas Paine's name in a speech, even though they used his words. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until Roosevelt that mm-hmm. they did. Then Roosevelt, leading the charge of liberalism and social democracy, he harnessed Paine's arguments, well, his line from the crisis paper, these are the times that try men's souls. But notably, it was Ronald Reagan in his 1980 presidential campaign who repeatedly used Paine's words, we have it in our power to begin the world over again. Now, Oops. that's the revolutionary argument, and it's ironic, or you know, bizarre, and, uh, and maybe even tragic comic, <laughs> given what we've suffered, that it was Ronald Reagan yeah. who cites those words. Yeah, exactly. It really is. All right, well, we've, we've talked about uh, uh, the 18th century Thomas Paine uh, as a social uh, Democrat. We talked about the uh, 19th century Abraham Lincoln and his social dem- uh, democratic programs. So what were FDR's, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's, four freedoms? How do they underscore this democratic socialism that you describe and that uh, Bernie Sanders obviously cites? How, how do uh, those four freedoms come to be realized in this country, at least in part, by the so-called greatest generation uh, who fought in World War II and that you describe in your book? Right. And it, yeah, in 1941, in the State of the Union address, that was January of 1941, uh, Roosevelt felt it imperative to make Americans aware of the of the threat that was looming. That that there was it wasn't a matter of waiting for Hitler or or Imperial Japan to attack the United States. That those who we would most likely align with Britain and and Canada and other nations that were liberal democratic at least that they needed our support. So mm-hmm. he in essence wanted to rally Americans. In some ways this State of the Union address was a call to arms to create defense industries and support Britain and its, and its Commonwealth allies. But Roosevelt went beyond the sort of call to create a Lend-Lease, uh, even beyond the idea of creating, um, uh, you know, what they call it, an arsenal of mm-hmm. democracy. He said that we need to start envisioning the world beyond the war, the, the, uh, the world that the United States could help to create. And he said it should be a, a world characterized by four fundamental freedoms. The first freedom he, he cited was freedom of speech and expression. The second one he cited was freedom of religion or freedom of worship. And then he moved into, a, a, if you like, a, more, a, a little more radical kind of argument, although I think the first two were rather radical in 1941. Mm-hmm. But the third one was freedom from want, and the fourth was freedom from fear. And it was the case that he had in mind... This, this has a sort of global initiative for America, but when Americans themselves, North and South, uh, Americans of every color and every creed, uh, men and women, when they heard Roosevelt speak these lines, they believed 
that what he was doing was that he was referring to the previous eight years of the New Deal mm-hmm. and, the, and, the, and the war against the Depression, you might say, mm-hmm. and that now there was a chance in the midst even of the crisis of war to begin and to pursue the creation of a far freer, more equal, and more democratic America. I mean, really, there was so much to be done. It was not only the inequality and the poverty that Americans had only begun to address. It was also the question, clearly, of white supremacy in the South, of religious persecution and discrimination throughout the United States. I mean, Roosevelt really did believe that Americans had it in themselves to pursue a vision of those four freedoms. And even during the war, he began to do that. And in 1944, he then gave, if you like, more heft by calling for an economic bill of rights. And this was something that Bernie himself then resurrected or redeemed back in, was it early November, when he went to speak at Georgetown and explained to Americans what democratic socialism was. And these economic, the economic bill of rights, as Roosevelt saw it, he said, necessitous men are not free men. Needy people are not free mm. people. And he laid out this vision in which there were guarantees of health care, food, clothing, and shelter, of indeed recreation. Um, you know, and there were a total of you know, about 15 of these that he laid out. Yeah. And this was the idea that America would, would really transform, that Americans would transform the nation. And by the way, and this is, this is the most telling thing, we could say, well, Roosevelt was talking, you know, in a visionary sense. But, you know, there were polls done during... 1943 and 1944, mm-hmm. and it turned out that 85% of Americans, and you might say, you know, maybe 75% of Republicans and 95% of Democrats, and there were far more Democrats in those days, that they wanted to turn the, those economic, that Economic Bill of Rights into real public policy and public programs. The closest they came to it, because the Republicans and the Southern white supremacists in Congress were aligned against it, but they did succeed in enacting the G.I. Bill. And mm-hmm. if you look closely at what the G.I. Bill afforded, it was close to the, sec- the economic or second Bill of Rights vision that Roosevelt had laid out. And then the same generation, for all of the tragic turns after the war, you know, McCarthyism, um, the conservatism one might call, say, existed in the 1950s, mm-hmm. that generation that had been 15, say, in 1935, and had been 25 at the end of the war, when they turned 45 in the 1960s, they are reminded of the four freedoms by young people and others, and that's the generation that actually enacts the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Act, Medicare and Medicaid, reforms the immigration laws that most Americans think uh, somehow had always been open to Latin American immigration and folks from, from East Asia, radically reformed the immigration laws, created the Environmental Protection Agency, the Consumer Protection Services Commission, and OSHA, Occupational Safety and Health Administration. So you get this arc of social democracy, as I like to call it, from 35 right through to the early 1970s. And that generation arguably was the most progressive in American history, though undeniably my sort of, you know, my 60s generation had a role in that, you know, (laughs) the rambunctiousness of the times. But they're the ones who enacted all of this. Well, I'm I'm struck, actually, uh, uh, Professor, I'm speaking with uh, Harvey J. K., Professor of Democracy and Justice Studies at the University of Wisconsin in Green Bay. Uh, I'm, I'm struck by the point you make that uh, here was uh, Roosevelt coming out of uh, the Great Depression uh, in the midst of a war. That sounds a lot like kind of where we are now, still fighting all of these wars overseas, coming out of the uh, the Great Recession, at least. And Bernie Sanders comes in and says, now is the time. 
to to make these progressive gains to to uh, you know put these programs into place that Americans have been you know have been so popular for so long. You uh, yeah your story you cite in, back in 1943, 94 percent of Americans endorsed old age pensions that would eventually become Social Security. 84 percent job insurance that would be unemployment. Uh, 83 percent universal national health insurance. Well, we haven't gotten quite there yet, but. Uh, Obamacare finally uh, begins to do something, at least about that, as has uh, Medicaid. Uh, student aid, all of these things very popular. And I remember during the fight uh, over the Affordable Care Act, over Obamacare, we saw similar numbers. When you just simply asked people, Americans, are you in favor of universal health care for all? It was wildly popular. Right. And, and yet, somehow... By the time all of this stuff makes it, uh, you know, through our, our corporatized media and into our corporatized politics, now these very popular programs, now as then really, uh, these very popular programs suddenly become communism, socialism, a, a, a terrible thing. I suspect that's why even Eisenhower, you know, who built the national highway system, was, you know, called a communist uh, <laughs> for daring to uh, uh, put forward these democratic socialist programs. So yeah, Eisenhower also expanded Social Security because yeah. there were still occupations that had been left out, and, and Eisenhower made sure they were not. So how is it that we have seen Republicans, particularly in recent years, citing Thomas Paine, citing Thomas Jefferson, all of these people who had called for social democracy, but then ignoring the social democratic roots that, you know, have been were firmly implanted, frankly, in the founding of this nation? Do they just interpret things differently, uh, you know, or is this a matter of they know exactly what they're doing? They are working for the corporatocracy, not for we the people. And uh, they realize that you can call someone a socialist, you can call someone a communist, and that it will stick. And now Democrats even, I meant started this with the Claire McCaskill, uh, you know, Democrats will pick that up and will regard someone like Bernie Sanders as extreme for really calling for, you know, continuing the traditional programs of of uh, you know social de- uh, social justice and social democracy that uh, we have seen in this country now for hundreds of years. You know, for the last forty years and more, you know, these last forty years, we have seen in the United States and elsewhere as well, but in the United States especially telling something that must be called class war from above. I mean, if you think about ever since the midnight, the early seventies, mm-hmm. and then especially ever since the mid to late seventies, this the campaigns that have been waged against public services, the campaigns that have been waged against labor unions, the campaigns that have been waged against minority rights, or the rights of people of color, and the rights of women. Mm-hmm. I mean, this has been going on for 40 years, and young people may not even realize the degree to which these, the previous 40 years seem so much more American because they were so classically, if you like, small-p progressive. Mm-hmm. And these last 40 years, we've seen this Republican conservative ascendance that has so limited political possibilities, it has also limited our political imagination. And it and it has. I mean, that's what you see. You know, you even see Hillary Clinton, for crying out loud, uh, you know, saying, uh, well, that's not going to, we can't do that. Uh, universal health care is impossible, so we just have to make the best of it with uh, what we already have, the Affordable Care Act. That was astonishing. You know that, Brad? Yeah. For, for Hillary Clinton to stand in a, in a Democratic debate and say, we can't do that, 
And then, by the way, say she was embracing a Barack Obama, who I believe back in 2008 <laughs> said, yes, we can. Right. There was a kind of, talk about comedy of, of uh, you know, I mean, just a comic routine. I mean, don't, don't look, when, this, when November rolls around, I'm not a Bernie or Bust person, okay? We have got to make sure the Supreme Court does not go any further to the right than it has gone. But it is also clearly the case that I'm going to have to hold my nose when I do pull the lever if it turns out to be Hillary Clinton, because the Clintons have had a political machine that has been so closely embedded with the likes of Walmart, the big banks on Wall Street. I, I, I don't see how, I really do not see how we can call Hillary Clinton a progressive, quite frankly. A liberal, I'll grant her, but a progressive. Bernie Sanders has redeemed the meaning of progressivism. And, I, I, and I'm going to say this, and I mean it quite seriously. Mm -hmm. During these past 40 years, when Republicans have ascended, I think the, the, the biggest, the, I think the real culprits in all of this, and I mean this, have been the Democrats who've run mm. from the Roosevelt tradition. Yeah. And by the way, it's very interesting that back in 1931, Roosevelt wrote a letter to a historian friend of his, and he said, you know, the Republicans seem to have abandoned Lincoln. Maybe we ought to claim Lincoln for our own. Yeah. And, I, and we've, we had this incredible success in, in those years of 35 to the early 70s for all of the tragedies that also uh, uh, we witnessed. But it's now the case for the last 40 years the Democrats have run from the FDR legacy. I mean, it's been a, that's been the saddest part of the last 40 years. The Republican onslaught has been predictable. The corporate class war from above was predictable. But where were the Democrats to challenge it? In 1984, Walter Mondale ran, on a, camp, ran a campaign in which he said, we'll raise your taxes. Now, how's that for a, how's that for a promise, okay? Um, and they ran even for the term liberal. So you can imagine social democracy was completely beyond you know, their vocabulary or glossary. Well, and that is the thing. You know, I've you know long said that the greatest con ever played on the American people was Ronald Reagan's, uh, you know, the government is, is not the... Oh, yeah. is not, the government well, the is government not is the, the solution. The, the government said. is the problem. Yeah, and it was sort of from that point, and that sort of tracks with your 40 years ago math there, uh, where we suddenly decided government is not the solution to anything. Government is the problem. We can't solve anything thing with government it's all uh, oh, the private and by sector the way, yeah and by the way brad if you look at the, the carter years and mm -hmm. i know i know liberals have a certain thing about carter human and his commitment to human rights but he didn't wasn't committed to too many human rights here in the united states if you consider this consider this it was whenever reagan spoke of a, a, a clever line such as he did about government is the problem all he was doing was grabbing hold of, of, a, of a license granted to him by Jimmy Carter in words very similar to what Reagan ended up saying. And there was a famous speech that Carter gave that came to be termed by the media the malaise speech, mm -hmm. although the word malaise never appeared. However, I'll tell you the word that did appear regularly in Carter's speeches those days, and there was the word austerity. Mm. And he argued that it was essential for us to practice public austerity and to liberate business. Mm. To do, you know, yeah. to do what needs to be done. Well, what so, is what is the argument, Harvey J.K.? We've got just another minute or two here at best. Uh, what is the argument then? You know, we've we have heard since. Ronald Reagan and Jimmy Carter. We've heard it in the media. We've heard it certainly from the uh, Republican politicians that America is a center-right nation. And it is true. We elect a lot of Republicans at both the federal and the state level. So, uh, in other words, this is somewhat to play the devil's advocate, I suppose. Where do you get your assertion that Americans now are more left of, uh, are more, you know, center-left or, or just plain left than the mainstream corporate media tend to describe okay, us Okay, well, first of all, I think Bernie's performance 
given the fact that he was an unknown. He had no TV show. He was never the first lady. Given mm-hmm. Bernie's performance and young people's response to it in particular, we can see in many ways the redemption of that America. Moreover, the fact that Hillary has had to move so far, relatively speaking, to the left to try to catch up with Bernie mm-hmm. probably tells us that something's gone on where she realized all along the way she had been lining up in the wrong place in the center instead of on the left. So I think we have these indicators. And these movements, such as the Fight for 15, let's go back. Look, Occupy got crushed. Mm-hmm. The Wisconsin Rising failed. But they were, they were indicators of what was going on. And don't forget, the Wisconsin Rising got crushed here in, the United, in, here in Wisconsin when the Democratic Party nationally failed to speak up and support us. Obama had run in 2008 saying when workers were marching, he was going to put on his shoes and march with them. He didn't even come to Wisconsin. Well, not only so. did not only did those movements get crushed, but they were physically, literally uh, crushed by the government, violently uh, crushed. This was not it was not that they were unpopular necessarily. They were growing in popularity when the right. government moved in and violently shut them down. All of which brings me to uh, I, I I'm afraid it's going to have to be my last question, Harvey. Uh, Donald Trump. Well, Hillary Clinton has been using the argument, uh, you know, that if Bernie is uh, becomes the nominee, that the Republicans will use all of this rhetoric and all of what they have, uh, you know, been able to uh, achieve over the last 40 years as far as the uh, uh, the consciousness of America that, oh, we can't have a socialist in the White House, that socialism equals communism equals extremism. And as I said uh, at the top here, Donald Trump's already using that against Sanders, calling him a communist. So never mind the race for the Democratic nomination. What evidence do you have that Hillary Clinton is not right, that if Sanders is elected to run against whoever, whether it's Trump or Cruz or anybody else, they you know, come up with a, a scheme to get them the nomination. Uh, how do you know that the nation won't accept that argument at this point, that a socialist could never serve in the White House, that... You know, the old well, Reagan I, I have uh, no government idea, is a problem. Except for this. Yeah. I, I really, do, I, look, I mean, if I knew for sure, all I know is Bernie Sanders himself said they're going to throw the kitchen sink at us. And all I could imagine, and I don't mean to be silly about this, mm-hmm. but all I can imagine is then we catch the kitchen sink and we fill it with Ben and Jerry's ice cream <laughs> out of Vermont. I mean, I, I mean, seriously speaking, they are going to throw the kitchen sink. But I want to tell you something, they're going to throw the kitchen sink at Hillary Clinton, too. Yeah. And she's come far enough left that Look, Rubio and the others have already tried to portray, portray her as a socialist, so I doubt very much that he'll be lambasted any more or less than she will. Good point. Uh, you, you complete your article at, uh, at Moyers & Company saying that Sanders, who is garnering huge crowds, and this was written last year, uh, that Americans, this could be a signal that Americans may once again be remembering who they are and what they need to do to recapture government now in thrall to the money power and that ain't extreme. It's fundamentally American. And you point out exactly why that is in your article over there. Uh, social democracy is 100% American. Harvey J.K., professor of democracy and justice studies at the University of Wisconsin Green Bay and author of the book, uh, The Fight for the Four Freedoms What Made FDR and the Greatest Generation Truly Great. Uh, I want to thank you for joining me today. And, and by the way, thank you to my listeners uh, who reached out and made this happen, who said, Harvey, you need to speak to Brad and vice versa.
Uh, greatly appreciated, Harvey. Uh, people can follow you uh, on the Twitters at Harvey J K. That's the letter J and the word K K A Y E. And uh, I will include uh, links to your books and such at bradblog.com. Really helpful uh, talking to you, J- uh, Harvey. Uh, <laughs> thank you for joining uh, us, Brad. Thank you. Thanks to those who who who, may, who put us in touch. And if you would, please include the link to that Social Democracy is 100% American piece. I'd love for people to read that. I absolutely will. Uh, thank you, uh, Harvey. Greatly appreciate it. And hope we'll uh, speak to you again soon in the future. Anytime. It was a pleasure. Thank you, sir. All right. Me? What? Running late? Yep. Quick break. And we're back with the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Stay tuned. <laughs> Welcome back to the Bradcast. You're not going to get that conversation on Fox News, Desi Doyen. <laughs> Certainly not. Uh, you know, uh, tell people what country they actually live in and how things actually work. But we know what you will get on Fox News, maybe. Apparently another GOP debate. Ay, ay, ay. Really? I know. Yes, you're just delighted about it. I know. Uh, Fox News has announced they will host yet another. We didn't know if the one we saw last week would be the final GOP debate. Uh, And frankly, we still don't. They're announcing that they will have a two-hour debate on March 21 in Utah. Uh, The first time uh, Utah has seen a presidential debate. Uh, This will be on the eve of voting in Arizona and Utah next uh, next Tuesday, I believe it is. Um, But uh, we don't know yet if uh, the candidates, Donald Trump and whoever else is still in the race by next Tuesday, if they will want to participate or not. Donald Trump said both that he has had enough of the debates and that, uh, yeah, I could do two more debates. And he said it in the same (laughs) sentence. Yes, he did. (laughs) Uh, That was right after the CNN debate uh, last week. So who knows? We may if they do, if they do debate, we will, of course, cover it right here as ever. Yeah, we'll right have to the get broadcast. the band back together yes, with all the debate people. Yes, we do. Get Digby on the phone. Yep. All right, my thanks today, as ever, to our producer, Desi Doyen. Thank you, Des. Thank you. To our booking goddess, Cynthia Cohn, and to Harvey J.K. of the University of Wisconsin at Green Bay. My thanks as well to you, our listeners, for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, and I think it was a good one, uh, that interview with uh, Harvey, well, anyway, you can download it at bradblog.com. Uh, or over at iTunes. It's always free. Uh, If you'd like to drop me email, I am bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Twitters and the Facebooks, I am simply the Bradblog. And yep, we will have election result coverage on the Bradcast tomorrow. Until then, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Everybody.